0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, you can start finding your way to 2nd Samuel chapter 9. We'll be there in just a little bit this morning. So we just finished up a, a uh, sermon series on kingdom living, and we're not quite ready to get back into John just yet. So I had the opportunity to preach, and I was given the choices to preach whatever I wanted to preach. So that's, that's always nice. I, I do really enjoy kind of working systematically through a book of the Bible. But... Uh, it just so happens there's a passage I love, and it's, it's this passage. It's this this narrative, this story uh, that, for for as long as I can remember, in my days of kind of reading through Scripture, this is one of those stories that is that has stood out to me as just something uh, something so important. A, a story that maybe on its surface seems to just be kind of a passing narrative but one that has so many uh, beautiful depths of, of uh, parallels to the gospel that we'll enjoy. Now, I will say I, I recently had the opportunity to teach, with, teach this in student ministries on a Sunday morning, but that doesn't give you all permission to check out. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail uh, with, with this passage. But as, as we kind of prepare our hearts to look at this uh, story about David and this guy with a funny name, Mephibosheth, when I, when I said I was going to be preaching from Second Samuel 9 about Mephibosheth, Ryan said, really? How many times are you going to have to say that name? So if my tongue gets tied, you will be kind and gracious and understand. But as we, as we turn our attention to this passage, I want to think first just about weakness in general. Weakness isn't something that we tend to celebrate in our lives. It it's, tends to be something that we sweep under the rug that we want to kind of keep hidden. We, uh, if you think about weaknesses, you might think that notorious job interview question as you sit down, and the, the great one is, what are some of your strengths? We can rattle off strengths, and you hope they're not going to ask the other question, What are some of your biggest weaknesses? And what we tend to do with that question is we'll find, well, how can I I thread the needle to sound kind of weak and humble and yet turn it into this great accomplishment of mine? You know, sometimes I just care too much. Sometimes I I just, I work too hard. Because we're not comfortable with our weaknesses. We want to hide those things and it's, it's one of those things that makes us a peculiar people. We oftentimes talk about the gospel turning life kind of upside down because the very things that we tend to hold as, as most valuable and most important in life are those things that when we come to the foot of the cross, when we stretch our arms out in the empty tomb, when we look on high to our ascended savior, it's those things that the world doesn't quite understand. Yeah, you know, I, I often say you, you, you come to church and if, you, if you're unsaved here today or you, maybe you bring an unsaved friend and they, you hear us singing songs about a man bleeding, about precious blood and that sort of thing. How, how strange is that? How foreign is that to the unbeliever? And yet for the believer, it's the sweetest thing that we could ever cling to. It's the blood of our Savior. When we think of weakness, how, how often do you celebrate or embrace your weaknesses? It's the opposite of what we do in, in life. If we are track athletes, we don't want to be weak we want to push ourselves and strive to be best and, and cross that finish line first. It's a, if our job, we don't want to celebrate our weaknesses, we want to be the best that we can be. And yet when we come to Christ in the face of our king, our weaknesses are so important. In fact, if, if we don't see our weaknesses, we're going to miss the true beauty of our Savior. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians as he's struggling with what he calls a thorn in his flesh, and he says, I prayed three times that it be removed. And Christ responds, tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So, Paul goes on, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those are the very things, though, that we push against in our lives. We don't want to be content with weaknesses. We don't want to be intent with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. We want to avoid those things as much as we possibly can. And yet Christ here says his power is made perfect in weakness. As we look at this story today in 2 Samuel 9, I hope we will see the the beauty of, of weakness and staring at the, the beauty of weakness, we will turn and see the beauty of, of Christ in this story. Well, a- another reason, as I was kind of thinking through if I should select this text or not, I happened to look at the uh, Bible reading plan that we uh, published at the beginning of the year. And it just so happens that if you're on track, no shame if you're not, but if you're on track, this Tuesday, you'll be in 2 Samuel 9. Uh, so I figured that, that could be uh, special as you do get to 2 Samuel 9 and read it. Maybe read it with uh, a new perspective on the passage. But I do think I, instead of just jumping right in, I do want to kind of catch you up to, to speed in this story in 2 Samuel. And for that, I just we're not going to go all the way back to the beginning. That would be way too long. I love those kind of introductions. As Ryan and Brennan know, I love long introductions, but long introductions aren't a good thing. But I do want to go back to 1 Samuel. As we just think about the nation of Israel, they've, they've come out of the time of the judges. We enter the time of the kings. As you'll remember, Saul steps into the throne first. The, the nation of Israel they, they turn to Samuel, the last judge, and they say, we want a king. And it wasn't necessarily wrong that they wanted a king. Even all the way back in Deuteronomy, there's a promise that there's going to be a king. And God gives instructions for what a righteous king should do. Uh, if you think all the way back to Genesis. Oh, there I go. I'm going all the way back to Genesis. If you think all the way back to Genesis, as... Uh, the the blessing comes to Judah. It says he's going to be a lion whelp. He's he's the scepter will be in the tribe of Judah. There's a promise of a king. So the people turn and they say, we want a king. But the the difficulty is the motivation that they had when asking for a king. They said, I want a, we want a king like all the other nations have. We want a king that will go out before us in battle and win the battles for us. But if you're familiar with with uh, scripture as it's unfolding all the military battles that Israel has God is manifesting his strength God is winning the battles for them when they go out on their own strength they lose horribly so they wanted a king like the other nations they, weren't, they were no longer content with God as their king so when they first look for a king they, they see Saul God says you want a king here look at Saul Saul's wealthy. Saul is what we would call tall, dark, and handsome. He, is, he says it's, he's head and shoulders above everyone else. Like Saul's the guy. So Saul's the king, but it's not long before Saul stops inquiring of God. Saul is so impatient for Samuel to show up that he goes ahead and does sacrifices on his own. He's so impatient, impatient to receive the word of God that he... Turns to mediums. Saul rejects God, and God rejects Saul. And in this time period where Saul is still king but can ruling under his own strength, God anoints a shepherd boy, the youngest of all his brothers, to be the future king of Israel. And then you have this, this interesting dilemma. Or just kind of this drama unfolding as, as David is near to Saul and Saul starts to kind of pick up on what's happening. That David is supposedly anointed as this next king. David also becomes best friends, like the best of friends, with Saul's son Jonathan. David starts le- leading Israel's military out and these, these victories And the people start chanting for David over Saul, and Saul is just turning bitter with jealousy. He tries to kill David multiple times. Eventually, he's chasing David all over the countryside, trying to kill him. But then, at the end of 1 Samuel, we see uh, Saul and Jonathan killed in a a battle with the Philistines. Saul and Jonathan and two other sons are killed. Then David, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, is anointed king, but not quite yet king over all of Israel. He's anointed king over Judah in the south. The the commander of of Saul's army, at the same time that David is being anointed king in the south, Abner, Saul's commander-in-chief, he... He drags Ishbosheth. There's is another fun name, Ishbosheth, uh, in uh, so one of Saul's sons to be king over Israel in the north. And and the, the story is given to us that a long war was between the house of David and the house of Saul. Eventually, through a, a series of betrayals. Even Abner goes over to David's side, and he ends up being, being killed. But there's a coup, and Ishbosheth is murdered in his bed. And then David becomes king over all Israel. But then there's, there's a little, a single verse that we're told about. Just before ish is uh, murdered, the, the narrator does this interesting thing where he kind of sets up the murderers of, of ish kind of puts them in place, but then he tells us this little detail that we, that we hadn't previously known. In 2 Samuel 4, 4, we're told, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And then the narrator goes right back to the scene he had previously set up. ish is murdered in his bed. David becomes king. We're told David's kingdom and his strength increase. This little detail about this young boy with a funny name is given to us, only to come back in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Before we read it, we need to understand kind of, I think it's something we're very familiar with as we we think through the history of Scripture or world history, or if you just think through novels you've read or, or movies you've watched, TV shows you've watched, Whenever someone ascends to a throne, it immediately puts a target on their back. They're in danger of, of someone looking to how how can I get there? In fact, as you continue to read in 2 Samuel, David's own son, Absalom, conspires against David to take his father's throne. It's, it's a common thing throughout history. So it's understood that this little verse in 2 Samuel 4 about Mephibosheth's nurse taking him and, and fleeing in haste, it's a common thing when a new, uh, a new king arises to the throne out of that family line. It's a common thing for the descendants of the previous king to be killed. So Mephibosheth's nurse finds out that Saul and Jonathan and two other sons have uh, died on the field of battle and she picks up Mephibosheth to flee in haste. Her goal is to protect this heir to the throne. I am going to get out of here. But in her haste, she falls and Mephibosheth is crippled. He's, as described in, uh, in the verse, he's lame, both his feet So look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll read this together. I want to kind of explain it, but then dive into, as I said, the riches of the gospel parallels that were given uh, in this passage. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought from the house of Makir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson." And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your, master's grands, uh, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So, first, who is this Mephibosheth? Well, as I mentioned, He had that one verse kind of letting us know some of the background. By this time, he's coming before the throne of David. People estimate he's probably in his early 20s. He's a young man. He is still lame in both his feet, but he's an enemy. He's an enemy of the throne. So if you're in Mephibosheth's place, and all of a sudden a messenger comes to you, And says, King David wants has found out about you. And he wants you to come and have audience with him. You're gonna be struck with terror. Because from five years old on, you have known that you've been hiding out because you are an heir to Saul and that dynasty, which never became a dynasty, is done. King David now sits on the throne. I stand as an enemy to the throne. And now the king has found me out, and he is calling me to himself. Mephibosheth is an enemy. He's helpless. He's an enemy, but he's also Lame in both his legs. He, he Ever since the age of five years old, he, he can no longer fully care for himself. Now that wouldn't necessarily stop him from being a threat to the throne. In fact, later on in 2 Samuel, there's a little deception by this Ziba character where he tells David that Mephibosheth... As, as Absalom, David's son, chases David out of Jerusalem, Ziba says, "Yeah, Mephibosheth's hanging back because he's hoping that he'll be put on the throne of his father." So being crippled, being lame in both his feet doesn't necessarily say, "Okay, he's not a threat. We don't need to worry about him." He's still a threat to the throne. He's an en- enemy. He's physically helpless, and, and he knows his place. As he comes before David, he says, why would you have regard for a dead dog? We all love our dogs. Dog, being called a dog, though, was not a compliment. I, I, we wouldn't take it as a compliment as much as we love our dogs. Imagine a people who don't really like dogs being called a dog. He says, not that I'm just a dog. I'm a dog. I'm as worthless to you as a dead dog. And he comes from a land called Lo-Debar, which is translated as no pasture. No pasture. This is why I had Devin read Psalm 23, thinking of the good shepherd, as, we, as we've recently looked at in John a good shepherd seeks after his lost sheep. He brings them to a land of desolation, from a land of desolation into a land of good and rich pasture. And what I love about Psalm 23 is it kind of transitions from this picture of, a, of us being sheep to all of a sudden being sons sitting at the table of our, of our Lord that's mephibosheth but why would david why would david do this kindness to mephibosheth i've heard i've heard it said that this story is the pinnacle of david's reign this story is when david is most acting like the king that he was just a type of. You'll notice that as you continue reading through 2 Samuel, you have one chapter of like some military conquests, and then immediately David sins with Bathsheba, murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He has all the drama with Absalom, has the drama of uh, taking a census of the people when he never should have taken a census, and the, and the people suffer for it. This is the pinnacle of David's kingly reign. The the man after God's own heart. This shepherd king. This is how he showed true power, true love. This is how he showed himself to be the type of Christ to come. Why? Why? Does he want to show kindness to one of Jonathan's sons? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, as David is uh, on the cusp of fleeing from Saul, he and Jonathan meet, and they talk kind of with one last time before David flees. And Jonathan has a request for David. He says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice that phrase. This is exactly what what David will say, that he wants to show the steadfast love of God uh, to one of Jonathan's descendants. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth... And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Why does David want to seek out one of Jonathan's descendants, one of Jonathan's sons? Because of his covenant love for Jonathan. He made a covenant, a promise to Jonathan, and it's out of his, his, this covenant of love that he made with Jonathan that he wants to show this love to one of Jonathan's descendants. David, in this desire to show this covenant love toward Jonathan's descendants, he, he seeks out someone with whom he might do this, so they bring Ziba in, and he asks where he might find a descendant of Jonathan, and they of course find Mephibosheth. David seeks after the lost son, and why again to show kindness? It, it's this. Ryan recently mentioned this that from uh, Exodus when. When God shows, uh, shows himself to Moses and He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes by and he declares himself the Lord, the Lord. And he says, God, steadfast love and mercy, steadfast love and faithfulness. This word for steadfast love in Hebrew is chesed. And it's a beautiful word throughout Scripture because it just keeps popping up over and over and over again. You'll see it throughout the Psalms. Steadfast love of the Lord. Steadfast love. Well, this is what David wanted to show. This kindness, this chesed, this steadfast love. You have Mephibosheth, an enemy who's weak and yet could take the throne. But this, this enemy, this dead dog, and David the king, and David desiring out of this, his covenant love for Jonathan to show this steadfast love, and he brings this enemy. He brings him in. He showers him. He, he lavishes him with blessing. He gives him back the land of Saul. He says, he puts servants in charge of it for him. He says, grow, grow the crops. I want Mephibosheth to be well taken care of. I want him lacking for nothing. But he doesn't simply send him to, to Saul's house and say, there, you're taken care of. I have done my part. The covenant has been complete. I've taken care of Jonathan's son. No, it doesn't end there. He says, "Mephibosheth, you will have everything you've ever need taken care, care of you. But you are going to eat at my table. You are going to come and dine with me. When I sit down to eat, you will sit down to eat." And he describes it by saying that he will dine with him at his table, table just like one of the king's sons. What a wonderful story. But if we simply just read it as kind of, okay, that's an interesting story, without seeing the gospel undertones, then we really miss the depth of it. So you think, you know, what's, what's the application of this? I simply want you to believe what Christ has done for you. So let's think of the theological perspective. First, we must understand who we are in Christ. And in understanding who we are, in understanding who it is that God has called to himself, it requires us to understand our weaknesses so as i said at the beginning it requires us to do that thing that's very uncomfortable for us to do we even come to church and we and i'm so guilty of this like we ask each other how we're doing it's like we know there's all this baggage from the week behind us. We know all this, the weaknesses of our, of our mind, all the sins that we struggled with, all the sadness of our heart, the, the many things that uh, keep us awake at night, those things that just seem to drag us down, and we wonder, is there any hope? And we come to church, and it's like, I can't unload all that on someone. I'm doing fine. I'm doing really well. Folks, we're weak. And if we can't see our weakness, if we can't see that we are frail, that we are sinners, we are going to miss out on the beauty of our Savior. I've quoted him before, but John Newton says, yes, I am a great, great and terrible sinner, but I have a greater Savior. Savior. We need to know and embrace our weaknesses. Not embrace our weaknesses in the sense that I'm a sinner, so I'm going to sin all the more. I'm not talking about that. But knowing that we are sinners, we are weak. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We are enemies. Romans 5 continues. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are weak and feeble people. God did not chose us because we were great, because we had some Establish some wonderful name for ourselves, but He established His name in us. And He did not choose the strong things of the world, but as He says in 1 Corinthians, I chose the weak things of the world to put my name upon. I, I, I love just the picture of even Mephibosheth's injury, how he's injured in the fall. He literally fell and was broken. We are crippled in the fall. You think back to the beginning, Genesis chapter three. We in Adam have died. We have lost the sweet communion with God. We have fallen and we have been injured. Not even injured. Mephibosheth is absolutely correct when he says, I'm a dead dog. And this is why, when Paul talks about uh, us in Ephesians 2, he calls us dead in our sins and trespasses. We are completely incapable of turning to Christ. But praise be to God, he came after us. We are the lost sheep. And he has come and rescued us as the good shepherd does. He comes to seek and to save the lost. This is the story of, of Jesus meeting Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you come down out of that tree. I'm going to go to your house today. We're familiar with the song. But as he goes to this tax collector's house, everyone else snickers and like, What? Is he going to dine at the sinner's house? Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly right. You know why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. David showed the shepherd king's heart in seeking and saving Mephibosheth. God manifests his love to us in seeking and saving the lost through his son, Jesus Christ. So if we deny that we are lost, if we deny that our weaknesses, if we deny that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, we are denying our need for Christ. We are denying our need to be rescued. We are denying our need to be saved. Why did he save us? Well, just like David because of his covenant love. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verses six, starting with verse six. Just listen to this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. A people for his treasured possession. Oh, they must have been great, right? I chose you to be a people for my treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you By destroying them, he will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. He has rescued us because of his covenant love for us, the covenant that he made with his son before the foundations of the earth were even laid. The love that the Father had for the Son, he gives to us. Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. says the Lord who has compassion on you. The steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Romans 8, as we think about the beauty of God's love for us. How steadfast is his love? Well, Paul can say this. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How far does this love then extend? Well, just as David sat Mephibosheth at his table as one of his sons, God does the same for us. He adopts us. If, if you haven't been coming to the Ephesians Sunday School class, I would highly encourage you to come to the Ephesians Sunday School class. We just recently looked at these verses where Paul writes to to the church in Ephesus in chapter one, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He has adopted us as sons giving us all the rights and privileges and inheritance as sons. So just as David brings this enemy into the throne and says, do not fear, these are the words we hear because yes, we are enemies, but God, as he seeks us out and brings us to himself, we are told, we're invited to come before the throne of grace with confidence Why? Because we no longer have to fear God's judgment. The condemnation has been taken out upon Christ on the cross. And we now come before him as sons, as Paul again writes in Galatians. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He adopts us as his sons. He lavishes us, lavishes us in his riches. Ephesians, First Peter—it's all over the pages of Scripture. The inheritance that is ours in Christ—and who is an inheritance belong to but a son? And that's why we are called the sons of God, because we have brought been brought in to enjoy all the depths and the riches of the inheritance that is ours in Christ as sons of God. The last verse in 2 Samuel 9, it just brings us back around to, re, to remember who Mephibosheth is again. It says, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table now he was lame in both his feet. A lot of times a, a line like that would be setting something up. But the story changes in chapter 10. Mephibosheth needed to be cared for, he needed to be taken around. He's lame in his feet. He, he's brought to the king's table. He's carried to the king's table. We're about to sing one of my favorite songs that's based on this story. Carried to the table. That is who we are in Christ. And that is a beautiful picture. And a picture that I would encourage you not to forget. In Christ, it's not all of a sudden that I am now able to do everything on my own. He brought me this far and now I can say thank you. I'll take it from here. But as his sons, we say thank you for saving us. Will you carry me to the table? He says, yes, I will carry you to the table. I will bring you to dine at my table always. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, in uh, later on as the story continues, Ziba betrays Mephibosheth and he tells David that Mephibosheth is seeking the throne. But when David comes back into Jerusalem after Absalom dies, he meets Mephibosheth. And here's David having shown him all of this love, this steadfast love, this covenant love. And he says, Mephibosheth, what gives? I did all this for you. Why would you take the throne? And Mephibosheth says, No. Zeba lied. In fact, he shows up. He hasn't even taken care of himself. He's been in mourning ever since David has been gone. And David says, well, I've already promised Ziba to give him all of Saul's land because I thought you betrayed me. Not to go back on my word, I'll give Ziba half of the land. And Mephibosheth, I'll give you the other half. And Mephibosheth says something wonderful. Give it all to Ziba. I don't need that because I have the pleasure of dining at your table. He says, I'll just quote him exactly. Oh, let him take it all since my Lord the King has come safely home. That as believers as Christians as those who are in Christ needs to be our heart cry as Paul says I count it all as loss I count it all as rubbish I count it all as trash for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord the pleasure of dining at our Lord's table what in his presence are joys forevermore why would I need anything else let them have it all I want to be at your table. I want to be in the presence of the king. I want to be in the presence of my father. This is our status as Christians. We are weak. And we are okay with being weak. Because when we are weak, then I'm strong because it's Christ's strength in me. Johnny Erickson Tata. She wrote, my weakness, that is my quadriplegia, is my greatest asset. Because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I get up. Is that how you feel? I know I struggle. I struggle a lot to think that I am doing this all on my own. I may not say I may not think or say the words out loud of like hey god I got this but I act like it a lot. Oh. Oh to just say to recognize my frailty, to recognize my weakness and say lord carry me. Cuz I have no other hope but you. As we come to the communion table, Psalm 84 For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I hope that's your heart cry. I hope that when it's not that you are confessing to the Lord, Lord, help it to be my heart cry, that I want no, nothing more than to dwell in your presence forevermore. As we come before the Lord's Supper, this is a perfect opportunity as we celebrate this meal, as we, as we think of coming before, coming to the king's table to feast with him. This is that opportunity where we come united to Christ, united with one another through faith, and we enjoy a meal in the presence of our God. Thinking back to Mount Sinai, as the covenant's being confirmed, the the leadership of Israel is welcomed by God to come up the mountain partway and to eat a meal. And they're surprised as they can see the the glory of God up on the mountain and they're enjoying a meal within sight. They are shocked that they are not struck dead. We come to this meal as sons. We come to enjoy it without fear that we will be struck dead because we don't take this as being perfect, we don't all of us know say, a, a, say a, a prayer of confession to purge ourselves of sin, and now I'm worthy to take this. No, we take it in worthiness because we are looking to Christ, and it's in Christ that we are worthy to be invited to the table of our Father and to enjoy His mercies forevermore. So if you have faith in Christ, if you know the words of this story today, of the, of the sermon today to be true, God says, come. Come to my table. I've carried you to my table, whether you realize it or not. I've carried you to my table to enjoy this meal in my presence. You are welcome to it. If you... Do not believe this. You're here today. And like, I, I don't understand this upside world, upside down, topsy turvy world of the gospel that these kind of strange, peculiar people are talking about. As we do every Sunday, I would just ask that you let the elements pass you by. As we say week in and week out, we don't want you to be confused. We don't want you to think that you can take this and all of a sudden be and be right with God. No. We take this because we are sons and daughters of the living God in faith. You come to him in faith in Jesus Christ and then he carries us to the table. If you are in that place though, I don't, we don't wanna leave you without hope. I hope you heard hope today. If you have questions, please find us afterward. Find me, find Ryan, find Bren, find any of our elders. Come and talk with us. We would love to introduce you to our Father. He is beautiful and glorious and magnificent, worthy of all our honor, worthy of all our praise, and he bestows wonderful blessings upon us as his sons. Let's pray, and then we'll celebrate the table together. Father, Help me. Help us. Not to be ashamed of our weaknesses, to, to act as if we have have it all together. But help us to, to find peace and comfort in knowing that in our frailty you are strong that it is in our weakness and frailty that you have called us, that you have sought us as your own, that you have, you have brought us out of the land of no pasture and brought us in to a pasture of plenty, that you have invited us to your table to dine in your presence without fear of condemnation, without fear of death. You have made us your sons. Help us as we enjoy this bread, and this juice together. Help us to be left in awe that we can dine in your presence without the fear of those things. Help the longing of our heart throughout the the rest of the week to find ourselves in your presence in this already not yet Help us to long for that eternal inheritance that is ours. And even there, when we are made completely sanctified, that we're glorified and perfect in your presence without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing, even then, our every boast will be in Christ for what he has done to bring us there into your presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.